we're talking about trying to fly to space a completely new way where we don't throw things away. Like we're not still in the 1960s. Like if you think of so many activities that we do nowadays that have changed since the 1960s. But the space industry has not moved on. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we launch into a conversation with UQ's high-flying rockets expert, Professor Michael Smart. Michael leads research into scramjet technology at UQ's Centre for Hypersonics, which is redefining space travel with reusable high-speed planes with air-breathing engines. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, Michael, we hear all these buzzwords like scramjet, hypersonic, sounds great, but what actually is hypersonic? Yeah, so hypersonic, is it's a very, very high speed. That's what hypersonic essentially means, very, very high speed. But um, when you travel through the air, what's important is actually your speed relative to this thing we call the speed of sound, which is basically the speed at which our voices travel uh, in the air. And it's quite fast. It's, a, it's of the order of 1,000 kilometers per hour or about 300 meters per second. So it's, it's quite fast. And when we talk about uh, hypersonic or supersonic or subsonic, it's subsonic is below the speed of sound. Supersonic is just above the speed of sound. And hypersonic is actually greater than five times the speed of sound. So it, it's very, very fast. And the things that travel hypersonic uh, right now are things like uh, rockets when they go to space. Uh, when things re-enter back from space, when meteorites fly back, they're all flying at hypersonic speed, so very, very high speed. Is there a kilometers per hour for us nufties to, yes, to yeah, gauge yes, that? Yes, so the speed of sound is about 1,000 kilometers per hour. So hypersonic, five times the speed of sound, it's about 5,000 kilometers per hour. That's fast. Yeah, so it's pretty fast, yeah. Um, so uh, going on from hypersonics, what sort of um, research does your center focus on? Well, we focus on uh, a couple of things, um, and it's all about flying very fast within the atmosphere. So we don't, we're not really, uh, we don't do research associated with flight between planets and things where there's no atmosphere. Because out there, it doesn't actually matter how fast you're traveling because there's nothing that you're banging up against. But when you're traveling hypersonic in the atmosphere, you're banging against air molecules the whole time, and you have to push them out of the way but also they rub against you and they create a lot of heat. And so there's, it's, it's actually a really, really interesting area of aerodynamics, essentially, that we do. And so the things we tend to concentrate on, uh, one is um, designing air-breathing engines called scramjets that can fly at hypersonic speed, and they only fly at hypersonic speed, interestingly enough. And then there's, this, um, there's the issue of, of re-entry. The, the problem when you re-enter, when, like when the Apollo astronauts re-entered from space or when the space shuttle came down, um, they're, tra- they're traveling at approximately Mark 25. So they generate enormous heat. And, um, and so therefore we have to have some sort of thermal protection system to protect the astronauts and the equipment as you re-enter. And so that's the other aspect of the research that we do. Ah, so it's not just creating an engine that will propel something so fast. It's also protecting what could be carried within that vessel. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and that's the, actually the real scientific reason for having a different definition for hypersonic flow. Hypersonic flow is you when you're traveling so fast that things get very, very hot and you'd have to worry about the heating. Whereas if you're traveling supersonic, 
you know, like the Concorde, which has uh, traveled supersonic about Mach 2, um, you know, the heat was not really the issue. It was more about um, being able to fly and the sonic boom. The sonic boom was the real problem um, with the Concorde. Um, but hypersonic means you really have to worry about heat. So we spent a lot of time in our tunnels in the, at, at, here at UQ, we measure things like heat transfer rate. So how fast is a vehicle or the surface of a vehicle heating up um, as we, when we do an experiment? And that's the thing that, that is really important at hypersonic speeds. And when you're talking about things that are heating up, I'm understanding then that there'd be a lot of collaborations because um, you're looking at the engines essentially, but would you be bringing other collaborators in to look at the surface of these vehicles to create um, heat resistance? Oh, certainly. Yes, yeah, certainly. So so the work we do is really associated with the aerodynamics of the scramjet engines and the vehicles, but then there's how do you make a vehicle that can survive? And so we work very closely with uh, material scientists. And um, the real breakthrough that actually has happened over the last 10 years is they have these um, high temperature composite materials. So just think of like fiberglass you, you, that you use to, for a surfboard. Um, but the materials now, they can actually withstand uh, of the order of um, 1600 degrees Celsius and, and be able to fly, heat up to that sort of temperature, uh, come back and land and cool down and then and they're not damaged. And 1,600 degrees Celsius, that's glowing red hot. You, like you couldn't look at that while, while it was that hot. So those materials um, that we have nowadays are really the thing that enable us to fly hypersonic. What is a sonic boom? You mentioned it earlier. How yeah. would you explain it to someone like me that only has an understanding from uh, Sonic the Hedgehog? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so uh, it is not quite the same as Sonic the Hedgehog. But um, it's what it is, is when a... When a a plane like the Concorde was flying supersonic, so it's traveling faster than the speed of sound. So it's pushing air out of the way in order to fly, um, but, be, but it generates a thing called a shock wave. And that shock wave actually starts at the tip of the Concorde and then goes all the way down to the ground. And because the Concorde was quite a big vehicle and it, didn't, it flew at about 15 kilometers altitude, that down on the ground, that shock wave, which is, which is the sonic boom, was actually still strong enough to break windows. So that was the problem with the Concorde, is that it wasn't allowed to fly over land uh, because it would break your windows. And, and you can't, you know, have planes flying around breaking people's windows. It's just ridiculous. So, so it only flew between New York and London and uh, would break the windows on, air, on you know, ships, perhaps. But... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, and that was the, the problem. But very interestingly, um, over the last 10 years, again, they've now developed um, supersonic aircraft like the Concorde, which don't create a sonic boom. Well, they create one, but it's much weaker. And so there's actually a big push right now to develop a new Concorde, which is perhaps a bit smaller, might, might um, have 30-odd people on it, would travel at Mach 2 again, um, but could fly over land. And so therefore, it was much less restrictive in terms of where it could fly. And, and so therefore, it's much easier to, de to develop a vehicle like that because it, it's not restricted to flying just one route, essentially. So it's a very interesting time. I have to ask, did you ever get the opportunity to fly on the Concorde and no. experience it? No, I was a student. Uh, I remember I lived in the UK for a while when the Concorde was still flying. Um, and I just never had the... Well, I would never want to put the money into it to, to fly. The Concorde. <laughs> it's quite a small thing, actually. It's actually quite small. 
Um, it wasn't a big plane like a, you know, like a 747 or an, the sorts of planes we fly to Europe in now. It's quite small. So you never got to experience it there, but you do have like shock tunnel labs and rocket launching tests. This sounds fascinating, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that would love to know, what are they? Yeah, so the, the key with doing um, research in hypersonics is, is we, we really need to do, be able to do experiments. So we need to be able to do experiments on the ground um, at conditions that are the same as what you would see if you're flying hypersonic uh, in the atmosphere. And so at UQ, we actually, um, Professor Ray Stalker, um, who was our, we call him the godfather of hypersonics. He's the one who sort of built up the hypersonic you know, ecosystem, essentially, that we have in Australia. Uh, he developed this facility called a, a free piston shock tunnel, which can recreate the conditions exactly that you have um, when you're flying a scramjet, for example. And so, um, so we have a facility like that here at UQ. In fact, we have a couple of facilities. And based on our designs, or Ray Stalker's designs, there have been numerous facilities built around the world as well. And so the key thing is we can create the exact conditions uh, that you have it um, if you're flying hypersonic, but we only do it for a very, very short time. Um, I was telling someone yesterday, our test time, which is where we have we're able to recreate things, lasts for three milliseconds, so three thousandths of a second. So a very, very short time. When we do our test, it's like a big bell going off. And by the time you hear the sound of the bell, the test has been finished for ages. And like human beings, we, we can't really sense how short a time that is, three thousandths of a second. But it's actually long enough for us to do a, um, a valid test um, in our tunnel. Now, in the um, late 90s and early 2000s, a group from within in our, um, with our Center for Hypersonics had the opportunity to do some flight testing. And it was called the High Shot Program. Um, some of you listeners may remember that, um, where we actually, we, we, they went to Woomera and they did a flight test of a scramjet. And one of the main motivations for that was, well, we do these tests on the ground, uh, but, the, but they're only for three milliseconds. Let's make sure that, that that's real, like real life. So the, flight, the idea behind the high shot was to, to do a real flight and we could operate a scramjet for uh, the order of five seconds. So a thousand times longer than we can in the tunnel but we pretty much got the same results. So it gave us a lot of confidence that all the work we do in the tunnel is actually applicable to reality. I'm guessing yeah. also that those um, tests, part of the reasoning for them being so short is that it's quite a costly endeavor. Like we see that this tends to be the playground of um, millionaires and, and researchers, obviously. Is that something you have to consider when you're testing your equipment? What the cost is going to be and if it's worth sinking the time and energy into that? Yeah, of course it is. So, you know, all research costs money. It's not, it doesn't just happen. It all, it all costs money. And so you know, a lot of our, the research at UQ over the many years has been supported by the Australian government through the ARC, uh, Australian Research Council, and other uh, avenues as well. And yes, of course we do. And so one of the advantages of a short um, test is that we don't use a lot of gas. So remember, we're creating this flow of air for three milliseconds. That's a lot of air. And so that air has to come from somewhere and we have compressors and all sorts of equipment to generate that. But if we had to, if we had to run a test for three seconds, well, we'd need a thousand times more air. So it's actually, um, 
it's a double-edged sword that what we do. So it's, it's short, so it does limit us in many ways, but it also, it's short, so it enables us to do lots of tests. And so it's one of those interesting things that happens a lot in science. You can just find the right place and you can do some really interesting stuff. And that's what we've been able to do. Can I ask, uh, I'll rewind slightly, scramjet, what actually, how does that differ from a regular jet? Yeah. Okay. So it's in terms of the way it operates, it's exactly the same as a regular jet. So a regular jet that we fly, you know, Brisbane to Sydney or wherever, uh, those, they're air breathing engines. So they're using the air to generate thrust. So they suck in air with, a, with that, those blades, all those blades. Um, they suck it in, they, they add fuel to it, and then um, the air go, must go out faster than it came in. And from Newton's second law, I hate to quote that in a podcast, but um, change of momentum means that you generate thrust. So if the air goes out faster than it came in, you generate thrust. And the air breathing engines are extremely efficient uh, because all you need, you're just using the air as this tool and you just, you just have to carry fuel. Whereas things like a rocket, for example, um, you have to carry both the fuel and the oxidizer, so the oxygen. And um, it, it's a much less efficient system. A scramjet is exactly the same as a jet. It's an air breathing engine. Air comes in, we add fuel, and if it goes out faster than it came in, then we generate thrust. But it's a much simpler engine because um, once you go to hypersonic speed, these shock waves, like the shock wave that, um, that was um, generated in front of the Concorde, those shock waves actually occur in our scramjets. And those shock waves do the job of the compressor blades, essentially. So we don't need all that comp complexity of those compressor blades. And so a scramjet is actually has no moving parts. It's just a very elegant looking duct um, with fueling and other, other things in it um, that's all designed to use the, um, the air itself to, to generate a thrust. Does that mean it needs some sort of launch yes. mechanism? Yes. Yeah, so that's and that's that's the limitation of a scramjet. It's like the double-edged sword thing with our testing on the ground. Um, a scramjet, because it makes use of the air using the air traveling at high velocity and generating shock waves to to operate. Uh, when you're sitting on the runway, it doesn't work. So you actually need to get up to about Mach five <laughs> before a scramjet will work, which is one of the main reasons that we don't see scramjets flying around now um, is a big limitation of the system. Here at UQ, we've basically worked on these things for over 30 years, and we, we pretty much know, understand how these scramjets work, and we have our own particular designs that uh, you know, we would say are the best in the world, and I think they are. And, um, but we still have this limitation that they're not going to work till you get to Mach 5. So um, I get asked a lot about, well, why aren't we flying, you know, to Europe on scramjets. And that's the reason, is that you need some other way to get up off the runway and all the way to Mach 5. And that's not an easy thing. Um, if you've got people in your aircraft, you know, playing computer games and drinking champagne and stuff, like you can't use a rocket for that. When we go to space, our first stage is a rocket. Uh, it's a flyback rocket. We actually fly the rocket back. We've done some tests here at UQ where we actually fly the rocket back and land it on a runway. So you're almost piggybacking off it. Yes, yeah. And so, uh, and that's fine for going, taking satellites to space and things, but if you're taking people uh, you know, on their vacations, um, 
then they probably don't want to get on a rocket, uh, unless that's part of their vacation, right? <laughs> Which is uh, space tourism. Three, two, one. We so Richard Branson's group, which is getting very, very close to ha having real tourists, you know, getting boosted by a rocket is part of the fun. But, you know, not everyone wants to do that as part of their holiday. Do you? I'd love to, yes. Yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> Definitely. Since you've spent so many years um, researching this sort of area, I'd, yeah. I'd expect that space is somewhere that you'd love to Yeah, I, I think I th think it'd be great to just do it once and to be able to look back down on the earth and, and really and feel that. I think that'd be a great experience, yeah. Have you always had this interest in space or is it something that you kind of fell into a little bit later in life? Because we often find... Children are fascinated with things like dinosaurs and being an astronaut and so on, but a lot of them don't go on to live out that dream. How is it for you? No, I, I, I've always wanted to do this since I was a kid, definitely. Um, you know, programs like the Thunderbirds. Um, sorry for anyone who's under 30 about that, but that was a fantastic program um, from the 60s and should all try and watch it with puppets. <laughs> but, I mean, it really gave the feel of, of excitement, the excitement of going to space and having adventures and so that's what got me interested the other the other really key event was in 1969 you know man first went to the moon neil armstrong landed on the moon i still remember i still remember that afternoon uh, my dad came home from work we lived in melbourne at that time and we watched it on the tv and i still remember that and that feeling and so that's what inspired me and um, so during my career, I had the real good fortune to be able to go and work at NASA uh, in, in the States uh, at the Langley Research Center, which is in Virginia, uh, where a lot of work was done to develop the Apollo space system that went to, uh, went to the moon. And at that time, I, was, I sort of still had this hankering that I might want to be an astronaut. But I sort of found that I was much, much better at doing the research, the hypersonic research to design new systems rather than being the, the, the flyer, essentially. And I recognized that that, you know, I probably wasn't, didn't have the stomach to be a test pilot or anything. So, so things worked out great for me. So it wasn't quite the same as what I envisaged when you were a kid. But when you're a kid, you don't really understand the, the, all the different things that, that are required uh, to make any system or any, or any activity even making music, you know, when kids want to be musicians or whatever, they don't really understand, well, how do you write a song, you know? How do you play an instrument? And all the other things that go on to create great music, which are not that obvious when you're a child. You talk about how you're working not only to get these scramjets so that they can travel at that hypersonic speed, but so that they can return back. What's the benefit of having them return back? Yeah, so the benefit there is is it's what you might expect. It's a sustainability thing. So... Our plan is to use these scramjets as a stage in a, in a small satellite launch system. The, the small satellite market um, commercially is, is really growing at, at the moment. You know, there are plans to put up constellations of small satellites which can supply broadband anywhere, broadband internet anywhere in the world, um, have sensors that look back at the earth and can do all sorts of analysis with um, you know, modern software, this AI type software looking at things. Tremendous uh, commercial opportunities, but the the real stop stopper for all that is it costs a fortune to to launch anything, and the reason it costs a fortune to launch anything is that you throw away the rocket every time. So every time you see a launch of a 
on the TV or whatever, apart from SpaceX, SpaceX do try to reuse part of their system and they land it on a platform. I, I'm sure we've all seen that. But th they throw these rockets away and they just end up in the ocean somewhere. And then they have to, then they have to just build another one to, if they want to do the next launch. So what our air-breathing um, scramjet engine enables us to do is to make a space system that looks more like a plane. It has wings, uh, has a tail, and it maneuvers. And so it can fly to the edge of the atmosphere. It can't fly all the way up into space because it relies on this air-breathing engine. Um, we have an upper stage that gets launched that goes all the way up. But it, what it mean, also means is you can just fly it back. It can land on a runway just like any plane. And then hopefully, if it's been designed properly, we just refuel it again and then we can do another launch. So it's just a totally different way of going to space. And that, that's what we're trying to, um, that's the, really the main message that I'm trying to get out to the community, but also to um, industry and they're trying to fly to space a completely new way um, where we don't throw things away. We're like we're not still in the 1960s. Right? We don't, back then, this was the, the solution they came up with to get astronauts to the moon by the end of the decade, that President Kennedy's idea. And they said, okay, we've just got to find the quickest, cheapest way to do this. And that the quickest way to do it was to throw everything away. Only use it once, so it only has to survive once. And then don't worry about trying to get it back because that requires more technology and wings and other things. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, we've stayed in the 1960s in the space industry. So the space industry is supposed to be a cutting edge industry, but it's actually built on this, uh, this thing that was developed in the 60s and we haven't moved on at all. Like if you think of so many activities that we do uh, nowadays that have changed since the 1960s. Um, I was born in the 1960s, so you guys know how old I am now. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but the space industry has not moved on. And some of it is ab about... Uh, it works, you know, don't fix it type of thing. But it costs, an, it costs an inordinate amount of money and it's just not sustainable either to just keep throwing these things away, especially if we're going to launch more and more stuff. Think about um, getting to work each day. Say you ride your bike to work and you have a lovely bike, you know, lovely racing bike and you've got all your racing gear on. And, so, and you get to work and instead of putting your bike in a locker, to ride at home, you throw it in the river and then just go off and you know, have your morning coffee and, and that's acceptable. And then when you go home from work, you have to go down to the bike shop, buy another new bike, put on your gear, ride at home, and then when you get home, you just you know, throw it in, the, in a heap when you get home. That, that's how the space launch community do things now. And it's just ridiculous. And And... You know, it just doesn't make any sense um, to continue to do that. And so we're, what we're trying to do is trying to break that paradigm where, you know, when we ride our bike um, to work, uh, you know, we can put it away uh, or keep it in our office and then ride it home and then ride it again and ride it back and ride it again. And, you know, obviously it's got to be much cheaper, hasn't it, than, than throwing a, a, your bike away every, well, twice a day essentially. So that that's how I feel about the fact that current space launch systems are, are tossed into the ocean every time they're used. When you say reusable, do you still expect that there's a certain life? Like, is it five times it's reusable or yeah. 25 years yeah. reusable? Yeah, so that's where the, you know, the high-tech engineering comes in. And a lot of these, 
that's really a lot about the materials. Can they withstand flying at Mach 10 um, numerous times? And so what we're working towards, we've done a lot of economic analysis of this. And, and um, if we can fly at least 20 times, uh, then from a business point of view, commercial point of view, um, it, it, all, it all comes together. If we can only like fly twice, three times, then that's really not going to do the job. So we've got to be able to fly tw- at least 20 times. And you might argue if something can survive 20 times, why, why not 50 times? Um, so our goal is to get to 20. And, um, and that's what we're working towards. And that's, and that's where our collaboration with other scientists and other engineers who are developing these materials uh, that, we, that we work together with. I know that after listening to you talk about this, I'm very excited and I bet a lot of our listeners are as well. Is there any way that they can help you reach this goal? Yeah, well, yeah, they can actually. So um, our startup company, Hypersonics, um, we're planning to do a, um, a crowdfunding campaign. And the crowdfunding campaign is not to develop our entire um, space launch system, which is you know millions and millions of dollars. But what we'd like to do is to prove that we can fly a rocket back and land it on a, on, a, on a runway, just like a plane. And we feel that that would be such an evocative way to, sh- to get this idea of reusability across. And so what we're planning to do is, is rather than um, run the rocket motor and to get it up to space, uh, which is very expensive and very complex, we're going to use a high altitude balloon. And so we're going to have the balloon take our, um, our rocket up to about 35 kilometers altitude, which is actually pretty high. When you look down from there, you can see the curvature of the earth and it's dark and everything. It's quite amazing. So we'll have like a live video feed, all those great things. And then we'll drop this vehicle and then it will do a, what we call a re-entry. So it'll, it'll slow itself down. It'll deploy some wings and a little propeller motor. And then we'll just fly back and land on a runway, um, just like any, any normal plane. And so we'd like to... Um, our plan is to raise the money for that, which is the order of, of a million or two dollars. Uh, so not a great amount of money. Um, great amount of money for the general public, of course. But um, we'd like to get people together. And, and, and you know, so if, if every member of, of our group that wanted to contribute could put in a $50 or $100 with some sort of uh, rewards associated with it, um, then we, could, we would hope to be able to raise the money to do that. And so... Um, so we're working towards that campaign now. We have um, a great team of young people who are helping me to do this. And um, so we're hoping to, to do our launch around August time, that, that sort of period. So, so yes, so the general public can definitely uh, be a part of what we're trying to do. It almost means you can buy a little bit into that space race. You can be a part of history getting towards that goal. Yeah, and actually one of the things we we're going to offer people is to, to put their name on the side of the vehicle, for example. You know, those sorts of things. So they can really feel that they're a part of what we're trying to do. And is space junk an issue? You talk about it coming back and we're dumping things in the ocean, which is terrible on Earth. But is there also that problem that there's things floating around in space, for example, cars that perhaps yeah. shouldn't be there? <laughs> Red cars, yes. <laughs> with, uh, yes, with mannequins in them, yeah. Um, no, that is a problem. Space junk is a big problem. Um, most of the space junk that's up there was has been launched over, you know, the last, since the 60s, over the last 50 years. Um, this, um, the new commercial activity in space is, in, interestingly, it's all in low Earth orbit. 
And what I mean by that is um, if the orbits that, okay, the radius of the earth is about, is it just over 7,000 kilometers? That's the radius of the earth. When I, when we put something into orbit, we're talking a low earth orbit, we're talking less than 500 kilometers, like compared to 7,000. So, you know, the atmosphere of the earth is, is actually very, a very, very thin layer about the earth. Um, but interestingly, if you put something in low earth orbit, unless you maintain it, there is enough air molecules up there to, to slow it down and make it re-enter. And so anything that you put in low earth orbit really is only going to stay there for a couple of years before it comes back in and gets burnt up. So the space junk problem is not in low earth orbit. And a lot of these new constellations that we're talking about putting up, they're all in that sort of that self-cleaning area. So the space chunk is not an issue. However, above that level, there are still heaps of space chunk up there that's already there. And, you know, getting, we don't want to contribute any more to that, but also we'd like to be able to bring some of that stuff down. And so there's a lot of activity at the moment thinking of ways to try to do that. But it's not an easy physical problem. Um, you did touch on watching Neil Armstrong take his first step on the moon. Um, it has been almost 50 years, not to give away your age there yeah, yeah. at all. What is the next step then for space travel? Because it feels like that's as far as we've got um, in, the, in, in that sort of realm. Is Mars the next moon? Mars is the next moon, definitely. And um, there's a big community out there who are very frustrated by the fact that we just went, we've made no progress. Um, and it's people... It's people like um, self-made billionaires, essentially, like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, who are going to do that. You know, um, I believe that they're the ones who are going to get us to Mars the quickest. It's not going to be the the uh, the government-funded way um, of NASA. That, that will certainly contribute. And NASA contributes significantly to all that activity that um, is going on in the U.S. Um, but it's it's going to be the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos of our world that's going to make that happen. But Mars is the next place, definitely. Mars is a planet, has an atmosphere. It's carbon dioxide atmosphere, so if you took your helmet off, you, you would die. Um, and the amount, the atmospheric pressure is like, I think it's the order of 1 50th of what it is here on Earth. So there's not much of an atmosphere. Um, but it, it, you know, the moon is just a rock, essentially, a round rock in space, whereas Mars is a planet, has its own geography and own um, um, ecosystem, essentially. Um, so that's definitely the next place to go. And, uh, and that's what we should be doing. Human beings, I really think it's important for us to continue looking outwards and continue trying to go outwards. For our society, I think societies that have broken down in, in history are ones that have sort of stopped doing that and looked back in upon themselves and they sort of break apart, um, like, you know, like the Roman Empire. You know, but if there's... we've there's so much more out there um, in space. So I think we could continue exploring for hundreds of years or thousands of years even. And I think we need to do that as a society. And would you like to see your scramjet technology being utilised in that realm? Yeah, definitely. Like our, our scramjet technology is really hopefully going to make it cheaper and easier to get things into low Earth orbit. And from there, then you go to Mars. In fact, the amount, the difficulty of getting to low Earth orbit um, is it is at least as hard as getting from low Earth orbit to Mars in terms of technology and energy and all those things. So I, I really hope that we can make a contribution, yeah. 
So we've been to the moon. Next step, you're hoping for Mars, which has better conditions for life. Do you think there are other life forms out there? You know, I, on Mars or just in general? In general. Yeah. You know, I think when you talk to astronomers and you ask them how many galaxies there are in the universe, it's some ridiculous number of galaxies in the hundreds of millions or billions. And in each galaxy, there's millions and millions of stars like our sun. And then in each one of those, well, say one in a one in a hundred thousand of them has a planet like Earth. It's hard to imagine that that we are the only ones uh, here. Although it, it is interesting, over the last short period, scientists have really learnt a lot more about how life began on Earth and uh, starting to think that maybe it's not as common as it was first thought. But still, that like I'm a scientist, the numbers tell me that it's very, very unlikely that, you know, Earth was the only place where the match was lit that, that created uh, life. And so on, as far as life on Mars, I think, I think they'll definitely find some sort of microbial life or some what we would consider sort of low-level life. But, um, but something biological, I think, that's, it's, I think it's most likely that that will be found in the next short period, yeah. Or Matt Damon growing potatoes. Yeah, or Matt Damon growing potatoes, yes. <laughs> Very resourceful. <laughs> right, well, we're going to close this episode with a short segment that we call Spare Change, in which we get to know you a little bit better with some rapid-fire questions. <laughs> so are you ready? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> okay. What's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? Um, I really love going to uh, live music. And um, I particularly <laughs> like uh, sort of grunge-style music. I suppose that shows my age a little bit. But there's a lot of great music uh, that comes to Brisbane nowadays. And so my wife and I, we go out a lot to live music. Fantastic. So what's the one question you're sick of being asked? Um, the one question I'm sick of being asked is, why, why aren't you flying yet? Because <laughs> people... No, we've had a long history at UQ of doing hypersonics. We had the high, high shot program back in the early 2000s. It's now 2018. You know, why aren't you flying yet? And I'm doing my best. You know, we're having a crowdfunding campaign. We're trying to do things cost money. And you have people, if you have to convince people to give you money, there has to be some commercial basis upon which you do that. And so that's really the, the magic that we haven't quite got together yet, but I'm trying so that, yeah, that's the question that sort of annoys me the most. Um, <laughs> if you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, start doing the business back then, 10 years ago. If I'd started that 10 years ago, we might be flying some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I only started about two years ago. So. There you go. So who or what is your biggest influence in life? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I mentioned earlier... Um, Professor Ray Stalker, he was a very, uh, a really great influence on my life and, and my career, but and many people's career. Uh, at our centre, we've had actually over a hundred PhD students graduate in the hypersonics um, um, discipline, and they're all over the world now. Uh, in all, not necessarily doing high-speed flow, but doing lots of high-tech things all over the world. So Professor Ray Stalker, I think, was really important to me. But just the whole, I idea of um, being creative 
in science, that it, it's not just about the tools that we use and the calculators we use, all the computers that we use. It's about thinking creatively about how to solve problems or how to understand things. That's a really big thing for me. Uh, and I think it's absolutely critical to any, any endeavor, whether it's scientific, artistic, um, anything that you do in life. And finally, um, you did touch on the fact that you like live music. So this should be easy for you. If you were to choose one piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? Yeah, uh, so when I was young, I loved the Smiths. We all know the Smiths. Um, that song, How Soon Is Now, it was a really great song. And I think, um, yeah, so maybe that might be one <laughs> that I would say. That's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Professor Michael Smart and UQ's Centre for Hypersonics, visit uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGore. If you thought this episode was out of this world, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.